Verse 22, it says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And Father, we just humbly ask that we could continue now in our worship as we submit our hearts and our attention to the authority and the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, prepare each one of us accordingly. You know what that means for each of us. We ask you would bless your word to our hearts this morning. And as always, we might hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us personally. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Now, would you agree probably one of the strongest driving factors in the lives of people is the pursuit of satisfaction? In fact, in some ways, you may date yourself this morning. The youth may have trouble keeping up with this particular one. But there, of course, was that famous song, I can't get no satisfaction. And then, of course, I tried and I tried and I tried, but I can't get no what? Satisfaction, right? What does it actually finally take to reach and to experience satisfaction obviously it's a plague and a problem for all kinds of human beings the song itself shows that well the bible teaches and jesus himself i think even in our text this morning directly indicates that satisfaction is found in being rightly related to the lord and as we are rightly related to the lord it's in that and in that alone i think that any human soul can find fulfillment Internally, Now, the backdrop to where we're going this morning in our text is important. Jesus, remember, after having just ministered to thousands of people, did this miraculous feeding with just five loaves and two small fish where he fed upwards of 10 to 15,000 people. Now, after he did this miraculous feeding, the people being so impressed by this and longing for the rise of a king in that day in Israel among the Jews who would deal with their social concerns and overthrow the oppression of Rome, wanted to make Jesus their king. In fact, we read last time that Jesus perceived they were actually about to come and make him king by force because they wanted a king and a political ruler. Jesus, sensing this, knowing it was not in line with the will of God for him in his first coming because he came the first time to suffer for sins and die upon the cross for our salvation and forgiveness, quickly dismissed the disciples, put them into a boat and told them to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He then remained behind, dismissed the crowds and went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Now, in the meantime, remember then this horrible storm came crashing down upon the disciples as they were trying to journey across the Sea of Galilee as Jesus had commanded them to. And here they were doing exactly what the Lord told them to do 
and they were directly struggling as the result of that. And we talked about how sometimes that's the case with our lives, that sometimes we're struggling because we're actually doing the thing Jesus asked us to do. And we can be directly in the center of God's will, even if we're in the midst of a storm. Well, as they are there struggling, the beautiful thing is as they're struggling at the oars and really wondering what is going on, at a certain point, Jesus comes to them walking on the water, revealing his power. They see things about Jesus they would have never seen if they were in a comfortable, safe circumstance on the shoreline. And they see the power of Jesus in the midst of the storm. And when they welcome Jesus on board the boat with them, another miracle transpired. Remember, it says they were instantly transported to the other side of the Sea of Galilee as soon as they brought Jesus on board with them. Now, with that backdrop, we then pick up, look with me, verse 22, where our text begins this morning. On the following day, after those events, when the people who were still standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one that his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, Verse 24 tells us there as well that when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they then got into boats and came to Cameron seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So the scene here now, verse 22 to 25 that we read, sort of sets the context. The next morning has now happened. The scene shifts back now to the crowd of people Jesus had been ministering to and the miraculous feeding they had received. And they now, it says, remained on the other side of the sea where the Lord had just fed the multitude and ministered to them. And it's at this point, verse 22 tells us that they took notice that no other boats were left there on the shoreline and that the one boat that was there the day prior, the disciples had gotten into and they remember that when they were sort of ushered away quickly that they left on their own and that Jesus did not get on board with them. And they're recalling this reality of how Jesus didn't enter the boat with his disciples, but he had dismissed them, sent them across, and then waited behind, dismissed the crowds, and that Jesus had gone up on a nearby mountainside by himself. So they expected, if you would, the multitudes, Jesus would still be in that local area. And the next day arises, the following day, and they're thinking, wow, I wonder what kind of miracle is going to do this day. So they're, in a sense, looking for Jesus to begin ministering in that area again, but they soon discover the scriptures telling us here that he's not around verse 24 indicates that the people saw that jesus was not there anymore so they're kind of a little perplexed by this where's he at he didn't go across the sea with his disciples they can't find him now locally and they assume that probably wherever his disciples had went that jesus went and met up with the disciples to be where they were so if you draw your attention verse 25 says that they went seeking jesus 24 told us 25 says and they having crossed over the boat to the same area of capernaum where the disciples had headed to they came seeking jesus and then they found him on the other side of the sea and somewhat perplexed how he got there they said rabbi when did you get here so the crowds go seeking after Jesus to find out where he is, thinking he probably somehow met up with the disciples. And as they get to the other side and they see Jesus there with them, they're somewhat taken back by this. They say, well, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, what they're saying is they're wondering, how did you get over to the other side so quickly? 
without a boat. Because they saw the disciples go and there was no other boats on the shoreline where they had just experienced the miracle he did the day before. So they're wondering, when did you get here? And we just came across in our own boat. So how did did you just get over here? When did you get here so quickly without taking a boat like the disciples did? Now, though their motivation and their agenda we're going to see is not yet on target as it should be, what they did and what they experienced still provides a picture and a lesson for us in one sense. They wanted to learn more about the Lord. They wanted to see him more. They wanted to pursue further help from him. So they took the time, got into the boats, traveled across the sea over to where Jesus was and made the effort and investment, it says, to go in verse 24, says, seek Jesus. So they're seeking Jesus. And as they're seeking Jesus, verse 25 says there, those two words, they found him. They went seeking Jesus and they found him. And what a great picture for us because whenever any person makes an effort to seek the Lord, he will be found by them. In fact, Jeremiah 29 gives us this promise there. It says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now we may look at that and think, Oh yeah, ask the Lord for this. Seek God to see if you can get that. But I think there is probably no other area that the Lord delights to answer that more than when we are seeking him personally. Just seeking him and desiring to seek him. Maybe not even seeking his hand, but just seeking his face. That we we are actually genuinely seeking him to know him, to experience him more. Well, verse 25 says, they ask him, when did you get here? And Jesus then answers verse 26. Look what he does, knowing their hearts. He says, verse 26, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So notice here, Jesus doesn't answer their direct question. And sometimes the Lord won't answer every question we ask him. Sometimes we think God must answer all of our questions, but I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. And there are a lot of questions I've asked that I haven't quite got an answer to. But I'm certain that when I get on the other side of the veil and I'm in the presence of Jesus, everything that was a question in my heart will be answered then. And so I accept that in faith. And so here they ask Jesus a question, when did you get here? He doesn't address the direct question. What he does instead is answers the more important need, which is he reveals to them the condition of their heart that was not in a right place, which he saw at this time and what they really needed to know instead. Do you notice in verse 26 there in the text, Jesus indicates he was aware that they were only seeking him for what? Personal gain or their own personal benefit somehow. Look at his language there. He says, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not seeking me because of what the miracle signified about me as being God. He's saying, that's not the reason you're seeking me because the miracle signified that I was God and creator and provider. Rather, he says, the reason you're seeking me is simply, he says there, because you ate the loaves of bread and you were fulfilled physically 
So Jesus could sense and see that it was because they saw he had the power to solve their temporal problems and to address their material needs that that was the primary motivation in their heart at this point for why they were seeking Jesus. They weren't really seeking him just to obtain spiritual life or know more about him as God. They were really primarily seeking him because they saw Jesus at this point, the crowds anyway, as just a helpful and a handy problem solver. Whether it was to fix their social concerns or meet their personal needs or their issues, it seemed that Jesus was kind of just, you know, he was kind of just a good resource, if you would, to have available to get some help and to fix some issues when necessary. And sadly, let's be quite honest, that sometimes is the only reason today still why and when some people will seek Jesus is because Jesus, people realize, has incredible power and they want help with their temporal material issues in life or to fix their problems. And so some people almost somewhat want to just use Jesus when their need arises or when a problem is at hand. And, and if Jesus can bless their lives and, and make things a bit better, well, who would be opposed to that? If he can make things a little easier. And the idea is that some, unfortunately, they don't really want to follow Jesus as Lord. They don't really want to serve Jesus out of love and have a relationship with him. But they realize he has power, that he can do things that no other person can or that they can. And so, therefore, they don't mind seeking Jesus for a little help now and then to maybe get ahead and if and when he can use his power to resolve their dilemma or, or get them their desire and the thing that they really are yearning for. Well, then, and typically only then, they will dial 1-800-HELP-AND-BLESS-ME-LORD. Right? And, and, and there are those who do that. That that's what they see Jesus as. You know, they'll, they'll curse the name of Jesus and live complete contradiction. But when the world comes crashing in or, or when they want the Lord to bless what they're doing, then they don't mind. Dialing up 1-800, help, bless me, Lord, whatever it is. And, and, and they know the exact digits and, and they'll, in a sense, take that approach toward the Lord. Well, listen, evaluate today how you relate to Jesus. And if in any way, even as a Christian, you find yourself sometimes relating to Jesus like this, understand, yes, Jesus has the power to help. And yes, Jesus desires to bless. But there's a whole lot more that Jesus really wants from us. And it's not just that we would use him as some helpline or SOS call or, or use him like a cosmic genie to bless our few wishes when we have them and we really want something like the great bread king. Jesus wants much, much more from your life. He, he wants you to live for him because you love him. He wants you to relate to him in a personal and intimate way, to let him be that friend in your life and the, the, the one who you follow as Lord. And let us all examine and, and, in a sense, guard our hearts. Let us not use Jesus as a resource, but let us relate to Jesus and pursue Jesus in a relationship. And we all have to be careful of that. Listen, perhaps in this room this morning, you've had a relationship before where you feel like, I kind of feel like that person just uses me. I kind of just feel like I'm a resource to them. And, and we don't enjoy that. We don't like when we see somebody using people as a resource. And, and so God help us that we don't just use Jesus as our resource, but that we love Jesus. 
and we live for Jesus and we serve Jesus and out of that relationship with Jesus therefore it's just a natural thing like Peter when we start to sink when we're walking on the water to just say and, and Lord save me but remember Peter was coming to Jesus when he just started sinking and said Lord save me and so let that be our primary thrust that we're not just seeking him as they were here unfortunately to fix a problem or to meet their personal need but that we're seeking him with the right heart and the right reason because we really love him and want him to fulfill the deepest needs in our lives verse 27 Jesus then goes on to say to them do not labor for food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the son of man will give you because God the Father has set his seal, that is his approval, on him. So Jesus now challenges them. Again, he, he, he calls them out on what he sees in their heart. But Jesus never exposes error in our hearts to make us feel bad. He exposes error in our hearts to help give us correction and to give us truth and greater understanding. So he now begins to do that. He challenges them not to spend so much effort and energy seeking after temporary fulfillment, but rather to seek after what's lasting and eternal. He starts to use this metaphor here in verse 27 of food. And it's a metaphor for that which supplies what is needed for fulfillment for a person or survival or to be sustained. The things that we seek out to satisfy our desires within. And Jesus says here first, do not labor for the food which he says just perishes. For the things which don't last. For the things which really just deteriorate in a matter of time. He's instructing them not to put so much effort in seeking fulfillment and satisfaction in just temporary fading things. And again, the reality is, truth be told, that's often what the natural human life is drawn to be preoccupied with. We are so often preoccupied with pursuing and laboring after the things which just perish. And putting a lot of energy and effort and, and endeavor to seek satisfaction and fulfillment in things that don't really even last that long. It's a temporary thrill. It's a momentary fulfillment, but yet it fades so quickly. And again, whether it's just normal things of this life or whether, sadly worse, it's, it's sinful and immoral things that give a moment of temporary pleasure. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. But yet Jesus says, don't pursue, don't get caught up in being preoccupied with those things that don't last very long because we put a lot of energy and effort, sadly, in the horizontal and the things of this world to always quickly find afterwards we're never really that satisfied then. And we're not fulfilled. In fact, often we find ourselves empty when we pursue those things which are just temporary of this earth. And the reason why, therefore, then we find ourselves always needing to pursue the next thing. And we finally get this. But it's amazing how, just like the kid with the Christmas present, is there another? Is there another? That's all. You know, and, and we, we, some of us never grow up. We get this, we get that, we get this, this, you know, achievement, this possession, that relationship, that fulfillment. And right away, we're already so quickly empty and we're after the next thing again. And Jesus says, don't allow yourself to pursue those temporary things. Rather, he says in our text here, verse 27, instead, he says, pursue the food which endures to everlasting life. He's saying instead of the temporary, pursue, put more energy and effort into seeking fulfillment and satisfaction in what really lasts, in what's eternal, 
in what has real substance. A person's foremost concern and pursuit in life should not be necessarily just to seek after what pleases them now, but more our greater priority should be finding and experiencing what we need to prepare us for eternity which is a relationship with Jesus and having our sins forgiven by him, knowing we're in right relationship with God, seeking after the gift of eternal life if we don't have it. And Jesus indicates the way to find those things, notice, is in not religious routines or rituals or practices. Where do we find what we need that's eternal and spiritual? Well, Jesus says it's found in him. Look at verse 27. He says, which the son of man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval upon him. Jesus himself is who supplies what the human soul needs. Religion can't supply it. Doing spiritual practices can't supply it. Only Jesus himself, who is the abiding eternal life because he is God, he's the source and origin, can supply that quality of life, which is the thing that the human soul desperately is longing for within. That's why the Bible says the free gift of God is eternal life, which is found or received through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's found through him. It's something that he gives to us. We must receive it directly from him. And that's why Jesus cautions as well us as humans uh, in regards to misguided pursuits at times and misdirected pursuits in this life. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus calls people to, to deny themselves. That is to deny the self-life, the, the, the life that always seeks to pursue what it wants for itself, what it desires. for. Jesus says, deny that, take up your cross and follow me. And then he says in relation to that, he says, because what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost, Jesus says that that would be utter failure of a human life to gain everything you possibly could and yet still to be empty and unfulfilled and to sabotage even your eternal destiny. Well, as the listeners in the crowd that day hear Jesus say the word labor, which he just did in verse 27, they're much like us. Their minds get fixated on that one term. They heard the word labor. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So the people want to know what can they do in order to perform the necessary works that God would require, they, they, they assume there's some necessary works to become right with God. And like many, they assumed, they believed that there must be some specific holy works, spiritual works. There must be some set amount, maybe even of religious and spiritual works that God requires to pay the access fee to enter into heaven and to have eternal life. There must be some set amount and specific works that God requires of humanity to become right with God and to have access into heaven. And if you achieve that, when the scales are weighed out, uh, then you'll ultimately have your, in a sense, entry fee paid into heaven. And that mindset, would you agree, that's held by a lot of people in our world. Whether it's just by assumption, some people just assume 
because of the way the world operates, that you work and you get paid according to work. And and, and so some people just translate that over into spiritual life and, and their perspective and their assumption towards God. That if my good deeds kind of weigh out my bad deeds and I do enough, then ultimately it'll tip the scales. And I'm, I'm, I'm in a sense, I've done a few more good things than I have bad things and a few more good things than this guy's done. So people believe that there must be some works to do the work of God to get into heaven. Some people tragically were even taught that in religious settings. More unfortunately, in those who call themselves churches. Some have even come up with this idea from a church experience that there are actually works that can be done. So they asked Jesus, what shall we do? We want to do the work that would be the works of God. And Jesus answers beautifully, and I'll take his word over any church. Jesus answered and said, this is the work Singular, notice, they ask about works. Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus indicates the way to receive what's needed for everlasting life is to have faith in him, to believe upon him as the one whom the Father sent as the solution for the sin of humanity. The only thing, if you would, every soul really needs to work on, if we could say that, The only thing every human soul really needs to work on, which God does require, is coming to a place of personal humility where you realize the depravity and the sinfulness of your own human soul to such an extent that you recognize and you understand and admit there is nothing you can do to work your way into heaven. That there is nothing that you could do to earn or achieve or attain a right to enter heaven And that is why Jesus had to be sent by the Father because there is no work that could be done that would be sufficient by a sinful human being to gain them access into heaven. That's why Paul says, I don't set aside the righteousness of God. He says, because if if, if righteousness could be obtained by the law, then Christ died in vain. And, and, And Paul said, I have a hard time believing that a good, holy, righteous, loving God would send his son to this earth to be disgraced, to be refused, to be spit on and mocked and scourged and beaten and crucified and his blood poured into the earth. If there was something that we could say, well, you know, I don't really need that. I'm going to get it myself. I've gone to church plenty of times. I've given plenty of money in the bucket. I've you know, helped enough old ladies across the street. I've read my Bible a few times. If there was something that we could do, Paul says, then there was no reason for Jesus to die. That was the whole reason Jesus came and did what he did and said, it is finished. The work is finished. And the one thing that we, if anything, as human beings, Jesus is saying the only thing a soul needs to work on is believing that truth that there is no works because there was one work that had to be done and that's why the Father sent Jesus to do the work that we could not do, to live sinless, to die sacrificially. And what God desires that we put all of our effort into is sincerely believing that. That that would be what our effort is in, sincerely believing, oh my goodness, Jesus, if you didn't do that for me, I'd be lost. And that I would continue to work upon, above anything else, appreciating and believing that. And not beginning to assume there's something somehow that's spiritual or special about me. And I'll tell you, that'll revolutionize your worship life, even as a Christian. As you continue to recognize and believe upon that reality more, that he was needed to be your Savior. That is why the Father sent. Jesus said in John chapter 3, remember, 
For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus said, And the Father did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That that would be the way. Well, as they hear Jesus say this, verse 30, it says, They therefore said to him, look at it, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? So they almost somewhat challenged Jesus here, asking him what new miraculous work, because it hasn't been since yesterday that he's done a miracle. What new work are you going to do this day to make yourself worthy for us to believe? If you want us to believe in you, we need to see you do another sign, some new work that we feel then indicates that you're worthy to be believed. They're basically, if you would, if you look at the text, they're basically demanding Jesus meet them on their terms. If he were to somehow be worthy of their special human belief. And they're kind of saying, Lord, if you do this, then we'll believe. And, and sadly, the human soul can be so depraved where people can even, Lord, you've got to meet me on my terms. Last time I checked, he was God. Did you think about breathing since the Bible study started? Somebody else has been taking care of that for you. Last time I checked, if God's God, then I think he could set the terms. I think he at least earns that right. And so they're saying, what new work are you going to do? We, we need to see something that makes you worthy of our belief in you. And they, so they propose, as the verse, next verse goes on, they propose he ought to do something, watch this, at least somewhat comparable to what their forefathers experienced in the days of Moses, they say to him, almost as if he needs a suggestion, remember, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. So they subtly, and I think here somewhat sarcastically, kind of remind Jesus that they don't feel his last miracle of providing food for ten to 15,000 people for just a day was really that impressive from their standards. It, I mean, it was impressive, but from our standards, we're the children of Israel. We're the ones who, through Moses' day, so they kind of remind him of the day of Moses' spiritual leadership. And remember, in Moses' day, in a sense, this is what they're indicating, uh, under his leadership, under Moses' leadership, the provision of God was something that happened every single day. We got bread. And that lasted for 40 years. It wasn't just a one-time event like you did yesterday, Jesus. And that bread didn't just feed 10 to 15,000 people. It fed upwards to 2 million Jews as they traveled through the wilderness. So what they're subtly somewhat insinuating is, uh, Jesus, we suggest you step it up a notch in the signs and wonders department if you think that we should believe in you. You need to turn it up a little bit. You need to come up with a little better miracle. They even quote a scripture there in verse 31. That always makes somebody sound more spiritual, right? Throw a scripture in there. So they're kind of telling Jesus now what he ought to do. Well, again, this utterly astounds me here. Verse 32, Jesus says to them, how dare you? No, he doesn't say that. That's what I would do. <laughs> he says to them, assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So rather than Jesus get offended and impatient with them, I mean, the, the patience of 
God is just incredible. He lovingly reproves them of their wrong mindset here. And again, he, he works with them. And he just reproves their wrong mindset. And in essence, what he's saying here in verse 32 and 33 is he says to them there, verse 32, first of all, he says, let's be clear. Moses was not the one who gave you the bread from heaven. That was my father. He had something to do with that. Here they were caught up like some people can at times with their eyes on a spiritual man. And Moses was the source and certainly God worked through Moses, but they made the ultimate human mistake of looking at the vessel of God rather than the God who was just working through the vessel. And just like in today's day and age of rock stars and Christian leaders, they, you know, they, oh, Moses. Oh, that Moses. What Moses? And, and they're looking at Moses and Jesus says, here, look, that wasn't Moses that gave you that from heaven. That was my father that supplied that. The Bible tells us in James, every good and perfect gift that comes down, it comes down from above, from the father. Now listen, I understand God may use men to distribute. He may use men to deliver, but they're just the mailmen. They're just passing along what God is the source of, what God is the provider of. And we need to always remember that and give the honor to the true source, which is God himself. And secondly, Jesus reminds them as well in these verses here that the bread that they received in Moses' day, he says that bread only met a physical need a temporary need to sustain you in the wilderness, he said. But he says, my father now, verse 32, wants to give you the true bread. The true bread, which is genuinely from heaven, which has the life of heaven within it that can meet your deepest need, Jesus is saying, for spiritual and eternal life so that you won't just survive in this life with some hope, but that you will have the help of God and the life of God's spirit to experience heaven ultimately. He describes in the 33rd verse there exactly what this true bread the Father was now giving to them actually was. What is the true bread from heaven? Verse 33, Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So notice what God sees is the deepest need of humanity and God supplies exactly what it is that they need. And the beautiful thing I see here in verse 33 is notice that God does not supply something. God supplies someone. You see what Jesus says in verse 33? He says, the bread of God is he. That is a person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, God seeing the deepest need of humanity supplies what that spiritual need is. And this shows you that the compassion and the personalness of God, God did not just send something from heaven in a disconnected and cold way, but instead God in his love actually sends someone from heaven. He sends someone, his own son, Jesus, to personally connect with humanity to provide what we need for spiritual and eternal life. But again, Jesus comes as the personal representation of God. And I tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the clear distinctions of Christianity is that God is not an aloof, distant, cosmic genie who you can't know and is detached from his people, but he is a loving, living, personal God who came in the form of a son to touch people and hug people and look into their eyes and cry with them and speak to them and teach them and to help them and to give ultimately his very life which would provide spiritual and eternal life. He says, this one sent from heaven is the one who gives life, Jesus says there, 
to the world. And the life that he gives is not physical necessarily, but spiritual. And that's important because the Bible teaches us that we all, because of the wages of our sin, the wages of our sin, the Bible says is death. The Bible says that every human soul by nature is dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, everyone starts life dead spiritually. It's the result of Adam. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and thus death has spread to all men. So we don't become sinners. We just prove that we're sinners as we live our lives. We're spiritually dead from the Garden of Eden. Adam could not pass on spiritual life because he lost it. The lights went out in the garden. That's why he started hiding from God. He didn't die physically immediately, but the spiritual life was lost when he sinned. And sin has caused the same effect in our lives. So that means something. In order to ever come into a relationship with God, the lights have to be turned on at some point. Our spirit is dead. You can't just flip over a new leaf. You'll see it's rotten on the other side as well. You have to have a time in your life where you receive spiritual life, not from doing something, but where you receive spiritual life from God himself. And that comes through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. That life is given to the world, Jesus says here, by the one himself from heaven. Jesus gives to us spiritual life so that we can then experience relationship with God and we have the eternal quality of everlasting life within ourselves. Well, verse 34 goes on to say, they said to him, Lord, then give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus now makes here the first of what we know of seven I am statements in the book of John. He makes his first one here. And when he says I am, that I am statement, that's a purposeful phrase that Jesus uses there to identify with Jehovah God among the Jews and particularly through Moses, who they just spoke about. Remember when Moses was being sent to the children of Israel as a deliverer, he said, whom shall I say is sending me to God? And God said, tell them, I am has sent you. God identifies himself with this title, I am, which is literally the all becoming one. The idea is whatever we need, God becomes. Do you need provision? God becomes your provision. Do you need protection? God becomes your protection. Do you need healing? God becomes your healing. He's the all-becoming one. God says, whatever you need, I am. That's a wonderful thing. God says, whatever you need, I am. I'll become it for you. I'm the all-becoming one. So Jesus, therefore, identifies himself with this title, I am, meaning I am God. And then he adds some attachments to this in John's gospel with a few of these statements. He says here, I am the bread of life. The idea is spiritual and eternal life, everlasting life. I am the one where when I am received within like bread is physically, I will give spiritual and eternal life. Even as physical bread is ingested into the body and it therefore provides physical life. In the same way, what's being said is when Jesus, the spiritual bread from heaven, is received into our life by faith, Jesus supplies life spiritually to our inward soul and spirit. He gives life. Romans 8 says the Christian has the spirit of Christ within us, and it's the spirit of Christ that gives us spiritual life. 
God makes us come alive together with Christ because he is the origin of spiritual life. And even as there is a way to partake of physical bread, it must be received it must be you know, ingested, if you would, internalized to give nourishment to the body physically. What is the way, therefore, to then receive Jesus as the bread of life? Because in the same way you must ingest physical bread to receive physical life from it, Jesus must be received into the life as the bread of life to experience what he supplies. Well, Jesus answers that for us there in verse 35. He says the bread of life from heaven is received by coming to him personally in faith. You see what he says? I'm the bread of life and he who comes to me and he who believes in me. This is how Jesus is received by coming to him and believing in him personally. That's how he is received into our life today. Have you ever at some point in your life Come to Jesus for the needs spiritually in your soul. Not if you've been raised in a Christian family or gone to a Christian school or whatever, and because you've been exposed to Jesus, somehow he just kind of becomes a part of your life. Listen, that don't work any more than if somebody rubs a loaf of bread on your face. Has Jesus ever become a part of your life? Have you ever opened your heart personally to the presence of Jesus Christ? And ask Jesus to forgive your sin, to be a part of your life. And I'll tell you this, if not, you will find, if you've never embraced Christ in this way, there will always be an emptiness in your life to some extent. And no matter what you do, there will always be something within you that hungers for something else. There will always be this nagging hunger and emptiness within. And no matter what you indulge, you will keep searching like a hungry person for fulfillment constantly because there's a part in your life that only the presence of God can fill. Only the presence of God can satisfy. No worldly thing can meet that need. No matter how many different wells you drink from, you will keep being thirsty until you receive what Jesus has. And notice that's the wonderful additional, and I stress the word additional benefit of receiving Jesus as the bread of life because he says, he who comes to me, our text says, Jesus says, will never hunger and never thirst. Now, that's a wonderful thing. That speaks of inner fulfillment, a sense of personal satisfaction in the inward life. This, this is one of the fringe benefits of knowing Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We have the hope of heaven and eternal life. We have a relationship with God. But more than that, Jesus says, that nagging hunger in every human soul, it goes away. Something that you finally go, I'm, fi I'm finally satisfied now. There's a sense of contentment in my life that I've never known before. And, and the void within you, which is a God-shaped void, becomes filled with the person and the presence of Christ. And so important that we all remember that even ongoing fulfillment and satisfaction in our life experientially, that is found in coming to Jesus because only his presence and his love can fulfill a human heart. It's the only thing, the only thing that can truly satisfy us inside. Well, verse 36 tells us, Jesus said to them, but I have said to you that you've seen me and you do not believe. So again, Jesus revealed himself repeatedly to the Jewish people. He made himself evident, but they stubbornly refused him as Savior. They would not put their trust in him as the Messiah. And like a person who refuses to eat and therefore suffers physically, people have free will in their spirit and people can deprive and starve themselves of the spiritual help of Christ 
by stubbornly refusing Christ and coming to him. Verse 37, Jesus says, All the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now I want you to notice there verse 37. It could be a sermon in and of itself there. In one verse here, Jesus speaks of the sovereignty of God and the personal responsibility of man as it pertains to salvation. In one verse there, Jesus who is God in the flesh speaks of the sovereignty of God and personal responsibility of man. The first part of the verse, he speaks of the sovereignty of God in regards to salvation. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. God is the one who draws and calls people to be saved. The Father chooses people to become followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, those the Father gives me to be my followers, they will come to me. And the Bible teaches the only reason any one of us has become a Christian is because of the grace of God, because of the amazing grace of God and His great love for us that's drew us to Jesus and salvation. Ephesians 1 and 1 Peter 1 speak of how we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That God chose you and called you and drew you by his spirit. And that is the only reason I came to be a follower of Jesus who lovingly drew me. How wonderful to know that God decided he wanted you to be a follower of Jesus. He's not tolerating you as a follower of Jesus. He wanted you as a follower. That should make you feel incredibly secure. God wanted you on his team. God wants you in his family. Now, on the other side of that, Jesus speaks of the personal responsibility of man in verse 37. Notice Jesus also says there, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus speaks of the reality that we must come to him. That is our responsibility. That is, we have personal responsibility in salvation. We each have a choice to make and God will hold us accountable for it. God will hold us accountable for whether we choose to receive Jesus Christ or reject Jesus Christ and what we do in regards to coming to Christ or refusing Christ. God will hold us all personally accountable for. In one verse, the Bible teaches, as it does, like a parallel thread through the scriptures, God chooses us for salvation, but we also have personal responsibility. And and Jesus speaks of both here. It's a marvelous mystery, but they are truths that run like parallel lines, like two friends throughout the Bible. The security that God chose us, the responsibility that God holds us accountable for what we choose. It's a mystery of faith. But it's something that's taught in the scripture. Notice, however, the invitation is open to all mankind because Jesus says in verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Again, notice Jesus doesn't refuse anybody. Well, I don't know about those two truths. God chose us, but we have to make a choice. I don't get how all that reconciles. Look, at the end of the day, the invitation is open to all. Jesus says, whoever wants to come. It does not matter this morning what you have done. Jesus will always receive you. He will forgive anyone who comes. It doesn't matter what you have done, how you have failed. It does not matter who else on this earth rejects you. And maybe everybody else wants nothing to do with you. Jesus wants something to do with you still. He'll never cast you aside. He'll never refuse you. He'll never reject you. You could never go too far to where you can't still come humbly to him in faith and he won't say, welcome. I'll forgive you. I'll receive you. I'll take you back into my family if you've wandered away as a sheep. I'll take you back still. And how wonderful that acceptance of Jesus is such a fulfilling, satisfying thing. And I'll tell you, when you come to know that kind of acceptance from Jesus, it'll really help you to stop striving for acceptance from everybody else in the world. Because you know, hey, 
I can always go to Jesus. He'll always embrace me. Well, verse 38, he says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, we've seen Jesus make statements like this just in our prior chapters, so we're not going to give extended exposition here. Again, he's indicating that he came not to do what he desires, but to fulfill what the Father in heaven desires. And this time he says it in direct relationship, we're going to see in context, to saving souls and assuring their eternal security. Look how he concludes our text, verse 39 and 40. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise it up the last day. So notice that Jesus here speaks really emphasizing in these last few verses that the security of the person who's trusting in him for salvation. He uses repetitious terms here purposely to emphasize a point. Two times he says, this is the will of the Father. He's saying, this is the Father's desire. This is what the Father wants even more than you want it. This is what the Father wants and what God wants, God brings to pass. What God wills, he ensures it stands. Well, what does God will? First of all, he says, verse 40 there, that God desires that everyone who sees Jesus and believes in him may have everlasting life. What does God want more than anything else? God wants every soul on this planet to look to Jesus, to see him for who he is, and by putting their faith in him to know they have the assurance of eternal life. God wants us to be spared from the torment of hell that we deserve for our sin and to have access into heaven and everlasting life instead. And not only that, secondly, we see in verse 39 that God's will is that Jesus keep and preserve by his mighty power those who've been given to be his followers. That all that have been given to Jesus to be followers, Jesus says that I would lose nothing. Again, Jesus is emphasizing here this reality of how we are secure in Christ and our salvation. That Jesus is reminding us here that if our trust is in him, our resurrection, our glorified bodies, our eternal existence in heaven, it's a sure thing because he's got it in his grip. He's got it under control. He's not some fragile company that's going to go out of business and our shortcomings and your failures are not going to ruin your eternal destiny. Yeah, you've stumbled. Join the crowd, Christian. God didn't erase your reservation in heaven because of the way you just failed recently. And the reason why is because Jesus is going to make sure that it comes to pass. Hey, what's one of the military mottos? That's Memorial Day on the battlefield. No soldier left behind. And I can tell you this is a Christian soldier. Jesus' heart is the exact same way. No Christian soldier is going to be left behind. The Bible I read tells me that he can keep you and I from stumbling and present us faultless before the throne because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You may look at yourself and sometimes you feel like a loser. But Jesus would say to you, I'll never lose you. You may lose yourself and others may think you're a loser, but I'll never lose you because I'm going to hold on to you to the end. And understand that unlike human relationships, people have a change of heart toward you. All of a sudden, they don't love you anymore. They don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. The Lord Jesus' love and commitment is eternal. It's eternal. It's lasting and it's enduring. And he will never change. He will keep loving you. 
until he leads you into the presence of his Father in heaven. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together.